scent gives birth to love and life. We foster passion to grow geniuses which lift humanity. And tailor technology to preserve liberty in balance with nature. Welcome, Welcome to Radical. Welcome to Radical, ladies and gents, boys and girls. I'm your host, Shane Hazel. Thanks for being here today. Got a great show for you. We are going to talk more about Bitcoin. We are going to talk about what is going on in the EU, a little bit about what's going on in China right now and how they are all related. Uh, thank you guys for being here. If you love the show, you can go out and support it at patreon.com slash radicalpod. Or if you just want to make a donation, you can use Cash App. Uh, dollar sign Shane Hazel there. Uh, thank you guys all who have. I appreciate every one of you guys and this growing number of people that are joining us here on Radical and everything that we're doing uh, now, not only uh, in Liberty, but in terms of using vehicles that are established in terms of pushing this to the forefront. And, and today is that. Um, there is a little bit of a reading. It's a little over 10 minutes. It's going to be proof of uh, proof of work, not proof of stake. Boy, about got that mixed up. Proof of work, not proof of stake for Bitcoin and why it's important and what you need to understand about it. This is, uh, this is a very fundamental premise in the understanding of what Bitcoin is and what separates it from fiat currency, whether it's digital fiat currency, CBDCs, or the quote unquote, you know, reserve currency of the world, the US dollar, or any other fiat currency that central banks have pushed for over a century now. Uh, this, this, this whole understanding of what is really happening, I think, kind of came uh, to light for me a couple of years ago in 2019 when I started to see Brexit happen. Brexit was a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal event. I was actually in England at the time that it happened. And when this was going down, a lot of people in England were very worried about leaving the EU in terms of not putting up with their central bank, not allowing these politicians that are centralized throughout Europe uh, to give more control to bureaucrats, to a European Union to make decisions that would drain them of their finances, of their, of their money, of their time, of their life. And when that happened, and it happened mostly peacefully, right? This was the first step in terms of a bank saying, I don't trust that central bank. We here in England are going to be uh, more decentralized and we are going to control our own destiny because we don't trust the bureaucrats and the politicians and everybody else that's involved with the EU. Very important historic event in 2019. We saw it coming a um, long, long time ago. Um, on top of that, obviously, COVID came around. And when this came around, um, there's, a, there's a woman who's in charge of the European Central Bank. Her name is Christine Lagrade. Uh, she is an absolute, I don't I'm mean, just a, a tyrant and a, and I don't know exactly how smart she is. I think she's been around for an extremely long time. I think she is a, obviously a puppet of the banks and, and a spokesperson and a bad one at that, almost as bad as Jerome Powell. I think Jerome Powell, obviously being the federal reserve here in America. Well, I should say the, the, the federal reserve an international banking cabal that prints the U.S. dollar or digitizes the U.S. dollar. Uh, these guys have a lot of the same talking points and they don't 
really they're, they're not coming forth and saying what's really going on right like transitory inflation uh we're going to see a hike in inflation rates and you know we'll use uh our you know our, our basis points tool in terms of in creating uh more interest to stabilize inflation well the problem is is when you're printing literally trillions and trillions of dollars or euros or whatever the case may be that you can't stabilize inflation you can't take that kind of pump and when you do take on that much inflation you print or digitize that much money in that short a time the amount of inflation theft that's going to happen during that time where you have more more money chasing less goods and less services especially when the governments that be were destroying supply chains you start to see this unraveling of what the banks are doing, right? Like they're, they're all shooting themselves in the foot because they don't have an answer for harder money. They don't have an answer for people who have a lot of money that are leaving the stock market, the foreign exchange markets, the bond markets. They don't have an answer for any of this kind of stuff. This is super important. Now, what should open everybody's eyes, uh, this Christine Lagrade, Lagrade, I don't know exactly how you say her name. I think she's probably you know from Belgium or Brussels or something like that. But the um, the what she starts talking about in terms of vaccination for the entire world, she says, "quote If we don't vaccinate the whole world as we should, COVID nineteen will come back to haunt us." Very interesting choice of words. Now in her own. I'm going to let this play. And then, thanks in many ways to globalization, and I'll be happy to expand on that, we came up in next to no time with vaccination, which is something that was unheard of. From a pandemic that started in February, we had vaccines available in December. Unheard of. We're just going to, I mean, now, now that science is moving so fast and you have to trust the science, now that it's moving so damn fast, we did something as what, a banker? We did something as banks and bankers that changed the world. We, we, in, we invested, we gave money to giant pharmaceutical organizations. This is, this is very interesting. When you have bankers talking about inoculation or quote unquote vaccines for COVID-19 in terms of a, a time period, usually this takes years, literally years uh, with regular regulations in the U.S. You know, sometimes you'll two, five, 10, 15, 20 years in terms of proving that a vaccine not only works, but is safe for human consumption. Um, this was pushed to the wayside. And we all know now, now, now that all this is coming out, now that you know, Twitter has brought back a bunch of people that were uh, taken off of the platform that were talking about exactly this thing, now we know for a fact that not only did their measures not work, but now that the vaccine is killing more and more and more people that are dying, quote-unquote, suddenly for a banker to be talking about this, the head of the European Central Bank with Klaus Schwab is remarkable. I'm gonna let it continue. Unheard of because typically it takes more than five years to experiment a successful vaccine. 
it's an admission that they didn't experiment for five years for a successful vaccine. They just did it. This time, it was nine months as opposed to five years. In addition to supporting the recovery, we have to anticipate. And by that, I mean, we have to vaccinate. How does a banker get to talk about this kind of shit in, in, in their world, right? Trust the science. She's not a scientist. She's a banker, right? She's an economist of some sort, a, you know, a Keynesian economist and a bad economist and terrible banker from, from the very jump. And she is talking about what has to happen to the entire human population or it'll come back and haunt them as it is now. Because if we don't vaccinate around the world, as we should, it will come back to haunt us and it will come back to hurt us. So vaccination around the world is the best way to anticipate what could come back in the form of new variants, in the form of additional contagion. I'm, I'm gonna tell you right now, this should send chills up and down anybody and everybody's spine. This was recorded on uh, November 6th of this year, right? And this, this is not ancient history. They are still pushing COVID vaccination around the entire world. The banks. Or else it's going to come back and haunt them. I'd say right now that it is absolutely coming back to haunt them. Now, in terms of why is this important? You're starting to see the connection. You're starting to see the connection that the banks have nowhere to go. That The banks are actually the ones that have been the puppet masters behind the scenes the entire time. The people that make the money, that don't care about the rules, the regulations, they don't care about anything. And I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's part of the, the, the old quote, you know, is, um, you know, if, if I make them the, the country's money, then I care not who makes their laws. This is the central banks. This is the European central bank on full display doing exactly that. Now, you need to listen to her more in her own words. This was on December 4th. Christine McGrath talks about losing her power, losing the bank's power, being, I guess, displaced if they don't go towards a central bank digital currency. Have a listen. Involved in experimenting, in innovating in terms of digital uh, central bank money, we risk losing the role of anchor that we have played uh, for many, many decades. And we have historical examples of period where the central bank uh, monetary anchor was not there and that precipitated crisis after crisis. That certainly was the case at the time of the free banking in the 19th century. Do we want to go back to those days? Probably not. I would say certainly not from our vantage point, as a result of which we have to respond to the demand for those digital payments in order to maintain the role of anchor that we have uh, been playing uh, regularly. All right. 
they are the anchor, right? They are what everything revolves around. And this is not, this is not you know, uh, contained to just the European Union. It's not. The countries in the European Union are not the only people. We've obviously seen what's happening over in China. Now, China's already implemented the CBDC. They, inter- they, they implemented it years ago. I think I began talking about CBDCs uh, and social credit scores when I was running the Rebellion uh, my my former podcast in 2018. So when you understand that social credit scores and central bank digital currencies go hand in hand, and then you fast forward and look at what is going on in China right now, there are drones flying through the high rises with speakers on them, telling people to suppress their appetite and their spirit for freedom. And to stay within their rooms, to stay within their apartments, do not go outside, do not, you know, do not sing, do not scream out the windows, do not chant. All of these things that are going on outside of these, you know, these high rises that are everywhere in a lot of the the Chinese, you know, provinces and cities. It, I mean, it is spooky. It is really, really creepy stuff. What is even creepier is now there are videos emerging of the white suits in China that are going out and barricading and welding shut the apartment doors, the entry and exit doors for apartments. They are literally locking people in to their apartments. They're already using CBDCs, and this, people in uprising, now that they can't get their funds, now that they can't transact, now that this social credit score system has gone so far as to piss off the very compliant, the very docile Chinese people that are starting to fight back. This is exactly where people like the European Central Bank, Christine Lagrade and, and Klaus Schwab, and the now the quote-unquote U.S. Federal Reserve this is exactly where they all want to go. They're using China and what China has done to push their narrative. It's fucking crazy to think that you want to be more like China right now, that you want white suits running around, you want camps going up, you want drones flying through the skyscrapers telling people not to talk, not to sing to stay in their house and you have those same people that are now welding the doors shut on those apartments and this is the way the European Union wants to go and this is the way the U.S. Federal Reserve wants to go. It's not just the politicians and it's not just the corporations. It is the banks who are pushing their narrative. Why? Because they have no tricks left with their Keynesian economies, with their fiat centralized, controlled command economies. It's not capitalism. It hasn't been capitalism for a long time. When she talks about the free banking system of the 19th century, the 1800s, one of the periods in history where gold and silver was exchanged from person to person without any knowledge by banks, by government, by bureaucrats, any of that kind of stuff. She doesn't want to go back to that because they didn't have a hand in it. They weren't rich because they weren't making the money, the amount of freedom, the amount of ideas that trans, I mean, just transpired, that, that made their 
moves around the globe during that time was unprecedented. People, I'm not going to say they were free. I'm not. But I'm going to say the people who were transacting person to person in cash or in coin, whether it was dollars or whether it was quote unquote dollars that were, I guess, backed by no kidding gold or silver. That's when humanity began to flourish. There's a lot of talk about, you know, you know, what happened during the 5,000 year leap and all that kind of stuff because of the constitution and bill of rights and all that bullshit. It's, it's nonsense. It's all the banks. And a lot of you guys are going to, you know, that are new here are going to be like, oh no, not the constitution. He's, he's not downplaying it or attacking the constitution. Well, yeah. Lysander Spooner, uh, briefed it very, very, uh, I guess, I, emphatically almost, he said something to the effect of you know, no matter what the current government is, the constitution was either inept in stopping it, or it was absolutely powerless to stop it in the first place, or it was inadequate. And either way, it's unfit to exist. I talked about this a long time ago. I used to do a lot of shows on the anti-federalists until I think I proved my point. The anti-federalists talked about the centralization of power anywhere. Centralization of power under banks, central banks, absolutely a terrible idea. Unless you're a central banker and you get control anybody and everybody, you get to pay the politicians to take votes for policy. Then you get to take your money that you produce out of thin air and you feed it into the industries. You feed it into those industries that will push your narrative and then they'll launder that money to the politician so that they have those policies put into words on paper that become law that at the end of the day have guys with badges and guns come out and point guns at peaceful people. That's it. Who's under assault here? Are these, you know, are, are, are the, are the banks going after hardened criminals? No, they're going after anybody and everybody that is a threat to them. Anybody that speaks out against them, anybody that takes action against them, anybody that is tired of being locked in their apartment after two years. Anybody that says, maybe we should be using fossil fuels. Maybe we should be using nuclear power. Anybody that says, hey, I don't think lithium battery powered anything is really feasible because you're not actually digging things out of the ground with lithium powered machinery. You're not. It's not sustainable. If lithium and batteries were were prolific and sustainable and had a good ROI, you'd be digging those things out of the ground with battery-operated machinery, period. All of this, this ESG, this environmental, social, uh, government scores and everything else, these ESG scores, these social credit scores, everything else is by design of the central bankers so that they remain in power, they get rich, and everybody blames everybody else besides the banks. They blame the politicians and the bureaucrats, and they blame the industries that are involved with them. Plenty of blame to go around, but at the end of the day, the people that are pushing this and pushing this hardest are the banks. There's no reason in the world banks should ever be talking about health. They should never be talking about anything in terms of quote-unquote science. None of it. This is the problem with centralized authority. This is the problem with centralized words on paper called constitutions. This is the problem 
that our generation has to deal with. We said, as you know, quote unquote libertarians 50 years ago, that this was going to come to an end. Right when Brenton Woods happened, this will come to an end and it's going to get awfully messy because when banks go down, when the most powerful people on earth go down that have been lying to people, that have been telling them that things like, I don't know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid will all exist in your old age while taking your money through force and coercion, when that falls apart, those people are going to be super pissed. To the point where a lot of times they call for the death of bankers. Yeah, stand by. Now, here's some more from our buddy, Christina. I would like to mention two aspects that come to my mind. The first one is privacy. In our public consultation, 43% of respondents ranked privacy as the most important aspect of the digital euro. Well, all right. She's talking about the digital euro here. Digital central bank, digital currency. Over 40% said that privacy was the most important thing. She's got a response for you. You're not going to like it if you're one of those in that uh, that 43%. She's got a just just a ready-to-go response. And it's something like this. Ahead of other features. So it is clear that if we want the digital euro to be attractive, it needs to be designed in a way that meets people's privacy expectations. We seek to ensure high standards of privacy for digital euro users, but full anonymity, such as offered by cash, does not appear a viable option, in my opinion. So, full anonymity. If you want to use cash, is there anybody that's going to know you use cash? No. Absolutely not. This is one of the beautiful things about cash. It was one of the beautiful things about the free banking period. You could have transactions with whoever you wanted. Now, she's going to go through a tirade of why it cannot be private. Why your interactions need to be recorded by the central banks, by the state, by the politicians, by the industries. And it's all for one reason. You know what it is. It's control. But listen to what she's about to say. She just threw out the window the idea that, oh, yeah, you know what? We know that 43% of you guys out there uh, really are concerned about what's going to happen with our private day-to-day -day transactions with people. The fact that we may have some, uh, I don't know, some misgivings about the bank and the state and the bureaucrats who have mismanaged the economy up to this point, um, maybe dealing with the people that would sing out of their windows, leave their homes, go to work, stand in opposition, and run their small business during COVID lockdowns. It would contravene other public policy objectives, such as ensuring compliance with anti-money laundering rules and combating the financing of terrorism. All right. Money laundering. Who does it more than anybody? The banks, the government, the industries that they are attached to. They send the money to the industry, they buy the politicians, and the politicians put it into law, and then they have a force on, a monopoly on force. Easy, easy, easy to see. When you start talking about terrorism, 
who is the number one state sponsor of terrorism? I guarantee you it rhymes with the United States of America, followed up by the European Union, the UK, and the rest of those idiots over in NATO. It isn't the small, everyday, Jack and Jill, mom and pop, average person out there that you have to worry about money laundering. I mean, seriously. Any of your friends involved in money laundering? Mine aren't. Any of your friends out there doing terrorism? Mine aren't. Are the banks? Are the governments? Are the industries that are connected to them? You're damn right they are. They want control over all of this. They don't want you to be able to fight back. If a, let's just say, a revolt happens against the banks and the government and the industries that are connected to them that have ruined their lives and have taken advantage of people and killed, I don't know, let's just say millions of people over the last few decades. Do you think they want people to be able to transact? Do you think that they want people to decide not to be able to pay for those transgressions, for their terrorism, for their money laundering? Of course not. And it would also make it virtually impossible to limit the use of the digital euro as a form of investment, for example, via holding limits, for which identities of users need to be known. So they're saying that if you store digital euros digital dollars, if you're storing these, if you're holding these, then we need to know who you are. Why do you need so much money? There should be limits on the amount of money that anybody and everybody has. Why? Well, if you got a lot of it and you got a lot of savings, that means you can make something liquid very quickly. And that means you can start moving people. You can start moving services. You can start moving products. And if you can start mobilizing people into places like, I don't know, the European Union headquarters, where the bankers are, where the politicians are, where the bureaucrats are, where the industries come to lobby. If you can mobilize people against them, that puts them and their livelihoods at extreme risk. We should at least provide a level of privacy equal to that of current electronic payment solutions. Oh, wow. Thanks. Current electronic payment solutions. Do you think those are private? They're not. Well, we're just going to, we're going to carry over to the status quo. No, you're not. You're going to, you're going to get your foot in the door with the status quo in terms of the electronic ability to pay people. And then what are you going to do? Then you're going to start cracking down. That's what happens every time they get their little toe in the door. And then the wedge opens further and further and further until they're welding your building shut. Until they're telling you you can't travel. Until they cut you off from your money and your resources. Here's the fun fact, boys and girls. Is if it's not your money, if they're the ones that produce it, if they're the ones that hold it, if they're the ones that control the ledger, then they are the ones who own your money. Which means they own everything that you've done up until this point to earn it. But I think it would be desirable to depart from this baseline in certain circumstances. For example, we are exploring together with the European Commission whether the digital euro could replicate some cash-like features and enable greater privacy 
for low-value, low-risk payments, including for offline payments. Ultimately, finding the right balance between the social value of privacy and the public interest in preventing illicit activities is a political choice and it is for the co-legislators to define. Illicit activities, those activities which are deemed non-agreeable to the state, to the banks, to the industries that don't want them. Words on paper by megalomaniac psychopaths. That's it. They're going to sacrifice your privacy. No, no doubt about it. Your privacy is done. They think that, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, there's nothing to worry about. Those are these people. They want to be involved. And, you know, they'll start with, you know, a, a random small, you know, amount of money. You know, whether it's $600 or $6,000. And I guarantee you, as time goes on, that amount of money that's quote unquote private, which let's face it, will never be private. Those people will know where it goes, what it's doing, and how it's being spent, no matter what. Now, is there a solution to this really, really absurd 1984 on steroids type of event that we have going on before us? Of course there is. I talk about it all the time. It's Bitcoin. Now, what do you need to know? What is the difference between what's going on in terms of the different coins that are out there? which for us as Bitcoin maximalists, we call them shit coins because they all take, I don't know, take advantage of people by doing a lot of the same things. They have a lot of the same attributes. They are centralized. It means that they have a group of people who control them. They control the code. They control the exchange. They control everything about it. So in terms of inflation, can it solve inflation? No, of course it can't because if they can control it, then they can expand it. They can shrink it to their behest for their gain. Exactly what's going on now. It's no different. These bankers want another shot. And the thing is, is this time, they're not asking. They are telling you exactly what they're going to do. Now, funny enough, we've got a great piece that is out uh, just recently. Uh, it is by a guy named Pierre. Uh, Gildenhoys, and it is called proof of work is the only viable form of consensus, which means proof of work is the only way that real money and value exists. I get a lot of arguments a lot of times. I talk about Bitcoin. I post about Bitcoin on Twitter all the time. And people that have this, um, I don't know, this indoctrination by the state, they're like, it's not backed by anything. It's, you know, it's, it's fiat and it doesn't exist. You can't touch it. Listen, guys, from a guy that's a homesteader and a homeschooler and a guy that is absolutely down being anti-fragile, let me tell you something about what I've learned. Gold, silver, other commodities that you take out of the ground, land, these are assets that you can touch. They are, no kidding, proof of work. Land being proof of work by God, gold being proof of work that some guys as young as, you know, little kids once upon a time and still go out to the middle of nowhere and they dig and they toil in the dirt to bring gold out of the ground and then take it in and have it melted down so that they now get paid in whatever fiat is out there. Um, and, you know, the banks keep gold and they keep silver 
on their banking sheets. This is just a fact. Now, these, these metals, these commodities, they are proof of work in themselves, as is Bitcoin. The difference between Bitcoin is it spends like cash, and you can have a global reserve currency where transactions can take place over the lightning, fa- over the lightning network faster and cheaper than Visa and MasterCard and American Express combined along with all other credit card companies. And there is a ledger that goes along with this that is decentralized. It is a code. It is a set of rules without any rulers. And this proof of work, this energy blockchain that exists is very well explained by Pierre in this article. This is important for you. This is important for your family. This is important for you going forward. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Bitcoin is the only way forward. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you right now that diversification in hard assets, gold, silver, lead, and Bitcoin, are an absolute must if you're trying to protect anything that you've earned in your lifetime right now. Because people like, what's her name, Christine Lagrade. They want to take your stuff. They don't want you to have any privacy because they want to be able to shut you down when you speak out and speak up and possibly push back. So without further ado, enjoy the article by uh, Pierre and uh, we'll be back afterwards to give you a little bit more. Proof of work is the only viable form of consensus. Bitcoin's consensus mechanism ensures that work needs to be done in order for transactions to confirm and secure Bitcoin in the fairest manner. Pierre Gillenoy's December 3rd, 2022. This is an opinion editorial by Pierre Gildenhoy, the co-founder of a Hong Kong-based social environment tech startup. Proof of work is the consensus mechanism that the Bitcoin protocol uses. On a fundamental level, this means that work has to be done to prove transactions that have transpired on the network are valid. Proof-of-work functions with specialized computers known as Application-Specific Integrated Circuits, ASICs, which input transaction data, information from the previous block here, and a nonce, random number, to guess the result of hash functions. Hash functions are one-directional mathematical equations so it is impossible to figure out a resulting output from a publicly visible input other than through rapid guessing as these ASICs do. Miners are the people who operate these machines, and they want to increase the number of hashes or guesses per second that their vices can produce, and they want to find the cheapest and most reliable source of energy so that this mining becomes profitable for them to pay off the cost of their machines and to make an income to cover other expenses. Despite this, it is an incredibly competitive industry as a result of Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment. Depending on how many hashes per second are mining on the network, the complexity and difficulty of hash function will increase or decrease accordingly, so that it takes an average of 10 minutes for each new block to be found across the global network. Blocks are a collection of the transactional data that has been transmitted and are added to a chain of all the previous blocks on the network and will only be transmitted and added to this blockchain when the answer to the hash function is found. 
Miners are rewarded for doing this by receiving transaction fees that are paid by users as well as earning a block subsidy, which began as 50 Bitcoin. But halves every 210,000 blocks, approximately every four years, the current block subsidy is 6.25 Bitcoin per block. The Bitcoin protocol has a maximum issuance of 21 million Bitcoin, meaning the block subsidy will run out around year 2140 and all mining rewards will be paid by transaction fees. The fundamental importance of proof of work. There is a real world cost to producing Bitcoin. There is a real world cost to defending the integrity and accuracy of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has unforgeable costliness, meaning that it would only be possible to make fake Bitcoin or fraudulent Bitcoin transactions through redoing all the costly proof of work that came before it at a rate that outpaces all the ongoing proof of work on the network. It has already become too costly and unfeasible to gain the 51% needed for any individuals, nation states, or organizations to take control of the network for their benefit and maliciously change the transaction history. This is contrasted by proof of stake, which serves as the consensus mechanism for many altcoins, digital penny stocks, and other Ponzi schemes being marketed as alternatives to Bitcoin. Proof of stake works through staking, or more simply put, locking the tokens of that protocol so that they cannot be spent. The number of tokens staked represents your chance of validating block transactions. The more tokens staked, the higher the chances of validating transaction, and thus the more frequently you would be rewarded. Bearing this in mind, most altcoins were issued to insiders and the development teams before they became publicly available. So major quantities of those tokens were already owned before outsiders could even start acquiring or staking them. According to a study by Sam Callahan, Ethereum had an official admitted premiere of around 20%, which is among the lowest of all altcoins, meaning that those insiders only had to acquire an additional 31% since public launch in order to change the protocol in whichever way that benefited them. While Bitcoin was a provable 0% pre-mine. The number of Bitcoin owned by any individual or group cannot change the protocol in any way, again, unlike altcoins. The only way to change the Bitcoin protocol is through true consensus of 51% of work done for the network, which has historically proved incredibly difficult to achieve and thus leaves the virtues of Bitcoin untouched, unless changes prove beneficial for everyone in the network. Research into the block size war is a good way to understand this. The implications of proof of stake. Proof of stake has no real world cost of production. A majority 51% stake is easily acquired by wealthy individuals, nations, and organizations so that they can change the rules of the protocol to benefit themselves. The defense of proof-of-stake tokens relies purely on the trust in everyone with enough capital or enough tokens to not change the protocol. Proof-of-work is a good use of energy as it secures global monetary network in a way where no one can change the rules or produce more tokens to inflate the supply, meaning that it becomes a financially suitable money to hold for a long period of time. Proof-of-stake is not an adequate replacement 
or proof of work because it doesn't solve the issue of intervention from malicious parties anywhere in the world at any time. Blockchain is not a new development, and financial payment rails can be developed which are much faster than any platform that uses a blockchain. Blockchains distribute total information about transactions to thousands of computers globally, thus making it slower than simply distributing balances from a centralized system. The only reason Bitcoin makes use of a blockchain is because it needs to be truly decentralized. And with the help of proof of work, it is provably decentralized. However, since the decentralization of proof of stake chains cannot be insured, using proof of stake altcoins essentially places your trust in a centralized platform which could have malicious intents and thus making it irrelevant to use proof of stake system when more efficient centralized systems such as PayPal, Cash App, or digital payments platforms exist. If you are comfortable with the risk that your funds can be stopped, censored, or confiscated from you at any time for any reason, or more permanently, that the platform can be revealed to be fraudulent or insolvent, then make use of the centralized system such as a legacy financial system or digital payments applications. However, using proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies, which are most often centralized Ponzi schemes that enrich its founders, is wasteful as they are pointless and simply take up storage space that could be used for more important data storage for the future. I will stick to Bitcoin, which is secure, immutable, unseizable, and decentralized with no single point of failure. Bitcoin is money with finite issuance, so the value of a Bitcoin cannot be stolen through unnecessary inflation of the supply, as has happened to every fiat currency and most altcoins. That concludes the article by Pierre Gildnoise. And uh, I got to say, you know, like this community is some of the best, brightest, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is there's not, there's nobody paying them to talk about this kind of stuff, ladies and gents. There is nobody, you know, I should say maybe Bitcoin's paying, you know, uh, some of these guys to contribute to their magazine. But in terms of going out and creating content about Bitcoin that doesn't have anybody at the helm, that has no rulers. This community is doing something because they believe that you should be free, that you should be anti-fragile, that you should be censorship proof, not just resistant, censorship proof. You should be able to trade with whoever, whenever you want. Doesn't matter if it's your neighbor. Doesn't matter if it's your kids. It doesn't matter if it's people around the planet. And as these currencies of fiat and fiat banks around the world fall, there is only one mechanism, one communications protocol that is going to give us the ability to continue the global economy, to trade with people on the other side of the world that are not your enemies, the people in Ukraine and the people in Russia, and the people in China, and the people in Singapore, and the people in Taiwan, and the people around the world that are just like you and I, that want to be left alone, that want to eke out an existence on this rock that's just hurling through space, Bitcoin gives us the ability to do that. Bitcoin gives us the ability to not only shrug off this gigantic 
group of psychopaths that run the banks and the governments and the industries that all profit from owning all the means of communication by shutting people down, by feeding them misinformation and trust the science and deplatforming them. The people that have ruined the economy and the supply chain for a very long time, most notably going into COVID in 2020. All of these people are absolutely terrified of free speech. They are terrified of Elon Musk possibly being at the, the, the head of Twitter. They are terrified of being found out. They are terrified of not having control of their money. They are terrified of you being your own bank. They are terrified of you being censorship proof. Think about that. Think about the team and army of people that are uniting for one common cause right now in Bitcoin. It's not that there isn't, you know, some places for, you know, some other coins and things out there. But I'm telling you right now, as the as this article stated, unless you're into risk, unless you are you want to gamble some things and get rich quick, that's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin is human species changing. It is right hand of God weaponry against the evils that are the banks that are the governments, that are these industries in centralized form. That's why it's taking off in places like El Salvador and Africa, multiple countries in Africa. It's because these people have been unbanked and they have had their life's work destroyed, their currency devalued, inflated away into nothing. Some of the most amazing places on earth more oil and minerals and everything else beneath their feet they've been debased and they've been debased by the likes of places like the European banks the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve the Bank of Japan and the Chinese Communist Bank the Yuan they know better than anybody and they're not going back down that path they are you setting up Bitcoin networks left and right. They are trading with each other without asking permission. It's time for you to learn. Some great books out there. I would definitely check out some of uh, Safaldinamos. He is the author of the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. Um, VJ, uh, he wrote The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. The block size wars are out there as well. There is a ton of great reading on Bitcoin Magazine, and there's a great, just a great number of people in the space. I hope you'll expand your horizons. I hope you'll look at what this is. It's incredibly interesting stuff. And then when you see behind the curtain and you kind of see what the matrix is, and then you can devoid yourself from it to get out of it, to opt out of it and say, hey, you know what? This isn't for me. This is something that is uh, right in line for the people that want to be injected, the people that want to censor other people, and those are people that I don't care to share oxygen with. So if you're into that kind of stuff, go out there, check those organizations and people and writings and, and just production out. They are doing this out of the good of their heart. They're, they're trying to, to make a new type of interaction, a new communications protocol that leverages peace and consent rather than force and coercion 
which is what we're all about here on Radical. So until next time, ladies and gents, I will see you tomorrow. Until then, I love you. I need you. Peace. Um, don't hurt people and don't take this back.